Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. It's straight out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. Today, Madness. Pure and adulterated madness. We'll try and analyse what happened in North London on Monday. And once we've done that, we'll try and get our heads around the fact that the bedrock of Chelsea's women, the totem pole of stability and the permanently shifting landscape of Chelsea Football Club, Emma Hayes, is leaving. Strap yourself in. Expect the unexpected. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic. This is straight out of just the most ludicrous Monday night matchup in ever. Ever. Jackson's on a hat trick here, and Jackson has Mutrick for company, and Jackson keeps on going, and Jackson has three! Big, broad, Senegal smile in the face of Spurs scowls. A night of unrelenting mayhem. And at the end of it all, as once he was before, Pochettino by hook or by crook, crazily, is the king of the Tottenham Castle again. Now in Chelsea colours. It was very emotional, but on the end, it's, it's like another victory. You know, uh, for me, the most important is the three point for us, and and it's Tottenham, but it's not a, it's not a special or sweeter because of that. Well, here we are. What on earth are we going to do to try and make sense of that game? Then I know I've got an idea. It comes in the form of a song. It's me, Matt, by the way. I've got Simon and Liam with me and their faces are set to disappointed. But here we go. On the peak day of Barclays, my Chelsea gave to me 12 minutes at 11 versus 9 men. 10 out of 10 for drama. 9 VAR checks. 8 yellow cards. 7 Raheem Sterling. 6 Chelsea corners. 5 disallowed goals. 4 away at Spurs. 3 for Nick Jackson. 2 Tottenham red cards. And a return to three-point lane. 
Okay, that'll do it for this week. Uh, join us again on Thursday when, um, no. Thanks for the standing ovation, guys. It's a shame you can't see it, listener, but um, Liam and Simon really enjoyed that, I'm sure. Uh, let's get into it then. Spurs won, Chelsea four, two red cards, five disallowed goals, one snapped hamstring, one hat trick, one book manager, 300 VAR checks, four days worth of stoppage time. And as I say, three point lane is back. Here's Liam amidst some Spurs fans pretending it's all fine and that their brave boys actually won. Where to start? I feel like in order to truly capture the essence of this game, there needs to be about 10 minutes of added times in this voice note. But I'll try to keep it brief. There are many different things I could say about this Chelsea performance. I think if they'd failed to win, it would have been their most disappointing result of the season. And it feels mad to say that about an away game against Tottenham with the form that they're in. But with the way circumstances contrived to tilt in their favour, it would have been, I think, just absolutely shattering for this group of players to contrive not to beat Spurs here and just to give themselves a bit of a lift. And for a while, honestly, it looked like they were in serious danger of suffering that fate. Tottenham's commitment, unwavering commitment to their high line was so unexpected and so unusual that I got the feeling Chelsea just didn't know how to deal with it. And having done so well to keep themselves in the game in the first 20 minutes when it looked like Spurs might blow them away, well, that feels like a century ago now, and eventually level the score, go up a man with Christian Romero's mad cameo. They seem to retreat within themselves with the man advantage. And then I think Destiny Udogi's red card almost made things worse for Chelsea because it increased the sense of grievance in this stadium. It meant that Tottenham had fewer players to push up to catch them offside. And I have to say, and I don't mean this personally because obviously he seems like a nice guy and I hope he succeeds at Chelsea. I hope every player succeeds. That was probably the worst hat-trick performance I've ever seen from Nicholas Jackson. The timing of his runs was absolutely atrocious for most of the game. He kept going too early, kept calling for the ball from offside positions, and eventually Chelsea stopped looking for him, which was even worse because it actually made Tottenham's defensive strategy more viable. Ultimately, Raheem Sterling's well-timed run got the breakthrough for them. Jackson finished it well and it ends up with a hat-trick given how ludicrous the final minutes were. He could have had about six or seven goals. This game never felt safe. A Chelsea win never felt inevitable until maybe the last couple of minutes of added time. And I think the fact that it felt that way is a testament to the way Tottenham adapted to difficult circumstances, but I think primarily it's a reflection on the naivety of this team. It was a really naive performance in lots of ways. And that was summed up to me by the fact that when Jackson scored his hat-trick goal and wheeled away in front of the Chelsea fans, I looked over to the touchline and the first thing I saw was Mauricio Pochettino and Thiago Silva remonstrating with each other. That is not typically the kind of scene that you witness when a team has just gone 4-1 up on their biggest rivals away from home. 
I don't think Pochettino will be happy with this performance and Chelsea have a lot of work to do but they really needed a win like this and maybe this can be the springboard to the better performances that they need certainly starting next week against Manchester City. Uh, Liam, your thoughts echoing Jamie Carragher's there. He said on Sky, if Chelsea hadn't won, it would have been a dark night for them. It kind of looked like that was the way that it was going to go. You said it was the worst hat-trick performance you'd ever seen. Was it Chelsea's worst performance of the season? That question was being bandied around the press room among the Chelsea pack as we were waiting for Pochettino to come in. And then we kind of proceeded with that as the implicit line of questioning and Pochettino very quickly got frustrated with us because as much as he was clearly very agitated and angry at times on the touchline with the way his team was not managing the situation both when they were trying to take the lead and then when they were managing the lead at 2-1 or mismanaging the lead by the time he got round to his post-match media duties he'd calmed down a bit and he was keen to put a positive spin on things Understandably so, given the amount of times he's had to talk about performances that have ended in bad results this season. This time, Chelsea got the opposite combination. They got, without doubt, their best result of the season. This is an amazing result. If you'd offered that scoreline to anyone of a Chelsea persuasion before kickoff, it would have been the stuff of dreams. And yet it didn't feel that way to anyone, I think. I've never known a a fan base online, less so in the stadium because they were obviously reveling in giving it to the Spurs fans as well. But I've never known a fan base to be so sort of underwhelmed slash frustrated (laughs) with a 4-1 win because Chelsea did make very, very hard work of it for long spells. And I do think if they'd failed to win, if they'd failed to find a way to, to solve what was ultimately quite a simple problem in Tottenham's insanely high line with nine men, I agree with Jamie Carragher. I think it would have been a really dark day. It probably would have been their most demoralising result of the season. I don't know if it was their worst performance, but they they avoided their, their most dispiriting setback. And instead, what they've got is a platform now to build on, albeit with Manchester City coming to Stamford Bridge next weekend. Definitely most high-line chat since that time. Arsenal thrashed Chelsea at Stamford Bridge under AVB. Uh, So six minutes, Kulazewski scores. 14 minutes, Song goal ruled out by VAR. 18 minutes, Udogi gets booked. 21 minutes, Sterling goal ruled out by VAR. 28 minutes, Caicedo goal ruled out by VAR. 33 minutes, Romero sent off. 34 minutes, Brennan Johnson sacrificed. Eric Dyer comes on. 35 minutes, Palmer scores penalty. 41 minutes, Postacoglu gets booked. 12 minutes added time at the end of the first half. 45 plus one, Van der Ven injured. Emerson comes on. 45 plus one, Madison injured. Hoybier comes on. 45 plus 10, Saar booked. 45 plus 10, Jackson booked. 45 plus 10, Colwell booked. 54, Udogi sent off. 75, Jackson scores. Dyer goal then ruled out. 86, Malo Gusto booked. 89, Mudrick booked. Nine minutes added time. 93, Jackson scores. 96, Jackson scores. Uh, Simon, you watched on from home for this one. At Silver Lining says, S. Johnson Sport must swear to be positive the whole episode. No caveats, just positivity. So you can't talk about any of the Chelsea defending, therefore. Uh, what was your take on the game? And did you need a good lie down afterwards? Well, I needed to lie down anyway because I've not been well for a few days and I've been popping a lot of um, medicine pills 
to try and alleviate the pain. But what I actually needed to be diagnosed with was a bonkers game in North London because for a couple of blessed hours I had some pain relief. It's probably the most confused I've ever felt watching Chelsea in that in that there were positives there and, and, and sort of reacting to that 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 comment there, I you know, which I know is a little tongue in cheek. I think it is very understandable why everyone had a sort of negative head on in the second half because suddenly the expectations shot up to they can't not win this game. And it was a combination of not just having a two-man advantage, but the pure bonkers way that Tottenham are playing. I, I found that the spin that has gone on this Tottenham performance quite extraordinary because they blew it. Forget about Chelsea's fan. I'm going to go on a on a... I should almost be on view from the lane rather straight out of Cobham because I'm absolutely baffled. Not only did they blow it, Battle of the Bridge style 2016, a game they're in control of last night again, and their own ill-discipline, just like 2016, helped Chelsea get back in the game. But Postacoglu's tactics were absolutely diabolical. Everyone knows, everyone knows, Pochettino said it himself before the game, we don't like playing against the low block. He said it himself. You go down to nine men, anyone with a brain would say, right, get organ." They got away with it before half-time. And I thought at half-time, Postacoglu is going to get into his team, organise them and sort of say, right, let's play with this formation. And... Honestly, the comments afterwards about this is the way I play, I almost felt like it was, um, as an Australian, he's been uh, enjoying baseball. That's a cricket reference. It's a very baseball. <laughs> it's a very baseball thing to say, oh, this is just the way we play. And any of you cricket fans listening will know what I'm saying. Oh, it's like hitting a, a very bad delivery straight to the fielder and going, oh, that's just the way I play. Or baseball, you know, just, just chipping it up for a fielder to catch. I'm trying to, it's very lazy. Uh, I'm just trying to think of our American listenership. Anyway, I've gone off on one about Spurs. I thought they were appalling. And I just thought it was a night that summed up why they don't win anything, quite frankly. But anyway, there you go. So I've gone in two-footed, a bit like uh, Idogi in on Spurs. But Chelsea, you know, there were positives there. I thought their reaction to a terrible start and basically avoiding going 2-0 down was good. They actually all arguably played their best stuff when it was 11 v 11 because they deservedly got back in the game in a, in a, in a match that was definitely going against them. But particularly the, the game management after they went, um, they were up against nine men was a bit weird. And I, and I did sort of tweet out that, in many ways, this summed up the lack of leadership in this team because all it needed was a few calm heads to just say, look, lads, no stupid free kicks around the penalty area and just get your foot on it and the goal will come. For about five, ten minutes there, they they, they panicked because they knew that very much for what Jamie Carragher said, I think they could hear the criticism in their heads if they didn't win that game because Tottenham made it so easy for them to win that game. Watching it live, it was hard not to cast your mind back to the Tottenham-Liverpool game earlier in the season when Liverpool ended up with nine men. We've seen very different circumstances, but 
the way Liverpool reacted to that, the way Jurgen Klopp, who I think is the most sort of recklessly attack-minded coach in the world at times, certainly when they came to Stamford Bridge and set up with a midfield three of all number 10s. <laughs> that said it all to me. Even they, when they went down to nine men against Tottenham, dropped into a low block and they almost got a point from it. They, you know, they were a Joel Matip own goal away from getting what would have been an incredible point out of the situation. And I, to big on what Simon said, I I do think if, if Spurs had been able to do similar or been inclined to do similar, they could have caused Chelsea far more problems. Having said that, they created a situation that was so unusual and so unexpected in terms of the dynamic of the game, but also the atmosphere in the stadium where because they were still playing on the front foot, they kept the crowd engaged and they kept the energy in the ground. And because obviously the fans had a sense of grievance and they recognised that everything was going against Tottenham, it became such a hot stadium and everything, every time, every attack Tottenham fended off, every save or interception Vicario made was cheered louder than a goal. And I think that created a situation that Chelsea found it quite tough to deal with for about 19 minutes. It was about 19 minutes, I think, from Adogi's red card to to Jackson finally scoring. And I think this speaks to a bigger thing, which I referenced in my piece, which was the more the circumstances of the game tilted in their favour and it transformed from a game that they wanted to win to a game they were obliged to win, you saw the anxiety creep into Chelsea. And I think we've seen that in different circumstances this season in home games that they've lost against teams that have defended deep and frustrated them. Obviously, a very different football problem to solve, but still a situation where they are the favourites. They're the ones with the pressure on them to make the game. Perhaps because this is the youngest team in the league, they don't seem to be very good at handling that yet. And I think the you know the positive that Pochettino will hang on to and the positive that Chelsea fans should probably hang on to is that they did ultimately find a way to solve the problem and get the win. But they were a good Rodrigo Bentancourt connection, headed connection away from being 2-2 with a few minutes left in a really, really raucous atmosphere. And I, I, I don't know what would have happened then, but thankfully Chelsea fans don't have to spend too much time contemplating that. Uh, let's get through some tweets. We had loads of them to at SO Cobham Pod. Many thanks to anybody who's got in touch. Uh, we have read them all, even if we don't read them all out. And we do appreciate you taking the time to contact us. Uh, Krishna says, feels like a reversal of all our other matches where we had the quality and probably played better, yet a performance that was subpar yields a positive result. Similar theme, Andrew says, our best result but worst performance of the season. This squad's lack of game intelligence was on full display. Uh, Luke said, think the age of the squad slash lack of leaders was evident tonight. Too many cheap free kicks and Tottenham still got too much joy. Could have been too, too many times before securing the win. Prashant says the scoreline is better than the game was. The lack of experience showed we need to be more clinical and decisive. Joe, don't care one bit about the performance. Good minutes for James. Confidence boost for Jackson. We move. Uh, Christian, on Poch, both during pre and post-match interview, you came across as a bit shaky and emotional. Be keen to know if anyone got a bit of a closer handle on how he really felt being back. 
Simon, this is an important game for Maurizio Pochettino, isn't it? Because all the talk pre-match was about his return to Tottenham and how he would be received by their supporters. But this is the best thing he's done so far to ingratiate himself with Chelsea's fans, surely. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why Chelsea going on to win the game was the biggest thing was for him, I'd say, because you can imagine that the Chelsea fan base, certainly the suspicious section or the doubting section, among the Chelsea fan base about Pochettino and his credentials and certainly his ex-Spurs links, which I thought he managed it quite well, the inevitable questions in the pre-match press conference and all the times he was asked about it. I know that there were probably probably Chelsea fans that wanted him to be a little bit more, I don't know, critical of Spurs or or distance himself from Spurs, but he was actually quite honest and, and he, he said it in his press conference about he can't be fake. He said, it's a lot worse to be fake. You know, people sort of saying, oh, he was asked, oh, have you fallen in love with Chelsea yet? Like like you have fallen in love with Spurs. And he went, look, come on, I've, I've been here four months. That was five years. Give me time, give me time. It was clearly, I think the same with Poster Coglu, actually. I think they were both knew what this game was, what it meant to them. I think Postacoglu, I actually wonder whether, because it was Pochettino, that's why he played as foolhardy as he did, because it was the ex-Spurs man that he was desperate to get a result against the guy that he will always be compared with during his reign. But yes, I do think that uh, this was a big, big night for Pochettino. It may not have gone as smoothly as he would have wanted, as Chelsea fans would have wanted. But I I think it's very, very easy, and this is coming from me, <laughs> I think it's very, very easy because of those, I'd say, particularly those 19 minutes that Liam's referring to and perhaps the few minutes afterwards to just concentrate and just remember the negative because of the way they handled that situation. But it was still an extraordinary result and I don't think that should be forgotten amid all the mistakes they may have made. I think what we saw was a team that has forgotten how to win against a big team. It's been how many months? It's over a year, right? It must be off the top of my head because last season they didn't win against anyone in the top half of the table. So I just think what we saw there was a team that that has forgotten how to win the big game. It's what I was referring to after the Arsenal game in my bitter rant on the voice note, because you can see the the soft underbelly that's there. And I think that's a huge psychological hurdle they've overcome. It may not have been overcome in the most convincing fashion, but they still overcame it. And I still think we should, everyone connected to Chelsea should remember the night positively, even though, on the flip side, there's still a lot of things to improve on and work on. And I think everyone needs that anyway before the game. Just quickly on Pochettino, there are obviously lots of questions about how the Chelsea players managed the game, but I thought he managed the game well. He was very clear-eyed in his decisions the whole way through, really, taking Levi Colwell off at half-time. I think it was a very sensible, cool-headed decision because he he recognised the the clear and present danger of Chelsea's indiscipline, making it 10 v 10. And then in the second half, you could see during those 19 minutes where Chelsea were a bit lost, you know, he brought Conor Gallagher and Mikhailo Mudrik over and had an arm round both and was just 
giving them instructions. His general demeanor was just, look, calm down, guys. I know it's hard in this environment and in this situation, but calm down and you've got this and you can figure it out. And I think he, I'm not sure Chelsea win that game with a coach that, you know, would have been ranting and raving in that time. He was ranting towards the end at Thiago Silva about the chances they were giving up at 2-1. But I think when they were trying to solve Spurs' high line, Pochettino kind of helped them through it. And I think that was an example of him, I think, being quite well suited to coaching a young, developing team. If we look at some of the individual performances, Simon, we've been a little bit critical of Nicholas Jackson. We should remember he scored a hat-trick and he did, uh, I thought, show great intelligence to not pass it to Mudrick, which was the obvious one for the third because Mudrick, for some reason, was just standing in an offside position and Jackson had to quickly sort his feet out and walk it in instead. Uh, Who else stood out for you and why was it Cole Palmer? Cole Palmer, who's that? Um, He's all right, I suppose. It's almost becoming a, a... Part of the podcast phrase book, Cole Palmer, as much as me saying positive, negative, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, he was good. I'm actually going to move move on from him because it's almost like yeah, whatever. You know, it's almost like a given. Twenty one year old scoring penalties in high pressure games. What of it? He does it every week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I must admit though, uh, there was that classic sort of pause when a penalty is almost saved, and then almost you know. Did it cross the line or not or whatever? <laughs> particularly, Liam would have got a better feeling for it, but particularly the, the away fans. <laughs> there was like a, it was almost like there was a VAR sort of moment because there was like that few seconds of, oh, can we celebrate that? Who else impressed me? I think given he's still only 50% fit, I thought Reese James was good again, showed the difference. There was a ball with the, um, outside of his right foot to Raheem Sterling for one of the many disallowed goals uh, that we saw on the night that was just top, top class. Um, who else impressed me? I say, though, looks like he's growing into the shirt, doesn't he? Um, I must admit, I wasn't overly impressed by him, midfield in general. He had his moments, but he also had his moments, if that makes sense. I thought Enzo Fernandez was a bit disappointing. But then there was a point, I don't know whether you guys picked up on it, uh, but after he'd gone off, the camera focused on the, for the, for the umpteenth time on the bench and the rather fraught nature of it. And you could see in the background, someone's foot was heavily strapped. And I think that was Enzo Fernandez in light of the disgraceful tackle of Romero. So that may have affected his, his display in the second half in particular. But, yeah, it's such a weird one. It's such a weird one in that there were good moments from some of those guys, but there was also some really bad moments. So it's very hard to single out individuals. So in my long-winded way, as per usual, yes, Cole Palmer. Good at football. We're looking forward to seeing him do it more. Uh, Right, Liam, let's wrap this up. I just want to hear from you where this compares in terms of games that you've attended, either in, you know, a capacity of a supporter or professionally and at what point did you settle on what you were going to write about and how difficult was that to do well I was contributing to a live piece on the whistle which is always slightly more stressful when a game feels in the balance and uncertain and that was particularly startling in this situation because 
it shouldn't have felt uncertain. It should have felt inevitable that Chelsea were going to win, given this, the dynamics of the game. But we didn't really decide on what I was going to write for that until quite late. And it ended up being, why didn't Chelsea run away with this about a 4-1 win? <laughs> but they didn't really run away with it, did they? Uh, and Until maybe the last, I don't know, five minutes. Um, and then as for the piece for the morning, it just kind of fell naturally into play really as I as you're sitting there waiting for the manager to come in you're discussing with the other journalists and you're trying to process what you've just seen and sometimes I find that quite difficult but it I quickly settled on Chelsea's naivety in the game kind of divided into three phases which was the indiscipline in the first half the being flummoxed by the high line in the second and then the terrible game management towards the end and that kind of became the match piece that is on the athletic now but I've certainly never seen a game like that (laughs) remotely like that and I'd be very surprised if Chelsea have another one even remotely like that this season though they do have to play Tottenham again so who knows I just have a question what do we think was worse the naivety to give away those free kicks or the defending from those free kicks, which Tottenham could have scored twice from. Yeah, that was pretty atrocious. You feel like yeah, it might be set-piece work done on the training ground there for the rest of the week. It's only Man City, Liam, on Sunday, so, you know, they won't create many chances. Yeah, I was just going to list my my top three Chelsea mistakes in the game. One of them was the Malo Gusto foul that led to the Bentancur chance because it was just completely unnecessary. <laughs> And it was so obvious that was what Tottenham were going for. Another one was, I don't know if you remember, it kind of gets forgotten because the sequence ends with a doggy getting sent off for fouling Sterling. But that's a three-on-one break that Sterling is leading. And Nicholas Jackson is standing a yard beyond the final defender calling for the ball. And Sterling just looks at him for about two seconds and Jackson makes no attempt to slow his run. And that's why Sterling has to sort of veer away from goal off to the right. And somehow a measure of the night and the way things went, it still ended up working decisively in Chelsea's favour. But that was just a crazy, crazy moment for me. And then I mentioned Pochettino putting his arm around Gallagher and, and Mudrick there, which was captured on the TV cameras. About a minute after that, Gallagher just smashed a cross-field free kick straight out of play. (laughs) Just seeing all of this thinking, I have no idea what the rest of this game holds. And there's absolutely no confidence in this stadium, I think, that Chelsea are going to get this done. But they did. All right, well, we'll leave the Tottenham game there, but it has been a massive weekend for Chelsea, not just in terms of the men's team, because there was a huge announcement that happened on Saturday afternoon, and we'll get into that next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, what a momentous few days it's been in the world of Chelsea Football Club. On Saturday afternoon, shortly after walloping Aston Villa, it was announced that the women's team would be looking for a new manager with Emma Hayes to leave at the end of the season after 11 glorious years in charge. We need a proper CFCW expert to talk us through this. Wait a minute. No, no, no. Surely not. Could it be that? That's Jesse Parker Humphreys music. <laughs> Jesse, welcome back. I'm sad it's not for the, the best reasons. Uh, my first question is, you okay, hun? It's been a long weekend. It's been a tough weekend. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Taylor Swift. I think this might be the most devastating breakup of my life to be honest it's really kind of jarring isn't it and I think we all got the news around about the same time so you you were at the Poundland Bescott Stadium it's nice that we can say the Poundland Bescott Stadium at least um sort of filing out reveling in a thumping victory thinking ho-hum this is a routine Chelsea game and then what you got an alert on your phone or something and your heart broke into a million pieces yeah just got into the car ready to drive back down to London and then, yeah, I got a text from someone and it was one of those moments where you kind of think this should be an April Fool, but it's not April. And it was it's very strange because, one, I kind of don't know how you react to that at all. And I think I'm still trying to process it. And I'm sure a lot of people are trying to process it. But two, as you say, coming off the back of Chelsea's most comprehensive win of the season, this real feeling that this team's in a incredible place that it's going to be an amazing year and then sort of all of that gets turned upside down to a certain extent I think we kind of get how seismic it is for Chelsea Football Club as a whole given the state of flux that's existed around it certainly in the last year but you know really for the last 10 or 15 years and then Emma's obviously been the one constant throughout that but in terms of the women's team specifically how are they going to cope with this between now and the end of the season? It's going to be a really interesting thing to see how it plays out. There's going to be a lot of focus, obviously, on the search for a new manager. There's things still to be sorted out in terms of, you know, Hayes is taking this US women's national team job, which you would supposedly officially start at the end of Chelsea season, which would be around the end of May and lead them into an Olympics that starts at the end of July. So there's some discussion around whether she'll be spending international breaks involved with that team at all, and obviously what that might mean for for Chelsea. But I think to a certain extent, the club will want it to feel like it is business as usual. And maybe we will get more into that. But as we get towards the end of the season, there's going to be a huge amount of pressure and not just pressure, but a huge amount of emotion um, in terms of wanting to give her the send off that her time at the club has deserved. And obviously a lot of that focus is going to come down onto a Champions League run because it's the only thing she's not won. And I think lots of people will feel that 
as incredible a manager as she, as she has been, and I personally don't think if she doesn't win the Champions League, it will take away from what she's achieved. But there will always be that sort of question mark if she doesn't manage to win it before she goes. And I guess it will just be how well the sort of players can deal with the upheaval off the pitch whilst, you know, wanting to reach a level on the pitch that they've not actually been able to make before. Why would they announce it now? Is that is that to kind of give the players time to to process the upheaval that you talk about? Or did they need to make it public? My assumption is that the US wanted to make it public and so that they Chelsea needed to announce it first. I believe US players were emailed sort of on Saturday afternoon, which had been their Saturday morning, to let them know that Hayes was the, the preferential candidate at that point. And obviously for the US, they're in a position whereby they've had the worst World Cup in their history. They sacked their manager at the end of that or parted ways with their manager at the end of that. And have sort of been in their own sense of flux. You know, we're now in November. There is this Olympics and, and the US take the Olympics as a tournament a lot more seriously than than we do here or we do even in generally in Europe because they don't really have a secondary competition. You know, we obviously have the World Cup and the Euros and then the Olympics is sort of this extra thing. But for the US, winning the Olympics is is really key. You know, it's not the same as the World Cup, but it's a very important thing. So I think for them, they wanted to be in a position where they could say to their fans and their players, you know, you are going to have a manager who's not going to be an interim for, for this tournament. So I think that is is what's pushed this day up to now. But I think you definitely get a sense that it's sort of come a bit out of the blue for Chelsea, just in terms of even reporting at the start of this week, which has been that, you know, they're going to take their time in terms of looking for a new manager, sort of the one name that's kind of been mentioned is Casey Sony, but just as like someone that they like. To me, that strikes me as being like, a, oh, we've suddenly got to pull this list of people together and, and maybe this isn't exactly what we were expecting to happen this season. From Emma's point of view, why is this the right time for her to move, do you think? Because she's only 47, isn't she? So it's not the, the age that people would usually go to an international job. Is this a Is this a prestige thing? Is it that she feels she's done everything that she can do with Chelsea or is she just kind of ticking the box of something that was on her bucket list of, of managing an international team? Yeah, I think there are a number of different factors. I think the first thing to say is that probably the US job is maybe the only job beyond the Chelsea job that, you know, you could go to in women's football. Maybe you throw the England job in there as well. But, you know, the US is the premier women's international team and, and has been for years. I mean, she's going to join them at a very interesting time where maybe other nations have sort of caught up with them and they don't have that advantage anymore. But I can see why it's a very attractive role in that sense. And I think it's important to situate it in how much of Emma's career prior to Chelsea has been in and around the US. She had her first senior managerial roles there. She, you know, famously drafted Megan Rapino, for example. You know, she she has been really involved in the past. It was just a very long time ago, obviously, because she's been at Chelsea so long. But it also wasn't a very successful time for her. You know, she struggled in those jobs, perhaps unsurprisingly, because, you know, she was taking her first steps in management. But I think for me, there's always been a sense that she sees that as unfinished business. She sees that as, you know, the original women's football market. And she never got to go and really show what she can do as a manager. And taking this role is her opportunity in the biggest job you could get in that country to show how far she's come. So I think that's the sort of professional interest for her. And then there's also, you know, 
a personal reality. She's got a young son. Club football is incredibly intense. And, you know, her role at Chelsea encompasses everything. And this is what's going to be so incredible to see how it plays out in terms of how the club deals with it. You know, this is a club that's been set up by Emma Hayes to run the way that Emma Hayes wants to run it. But that takes a, you know up a lot of time. And I think to be able to move into international football, to maybe have a bit more of a better work-life balance is something that's understandable, you know, given her role as a, as a mother. So you mentioned Casey Stoney there. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, ex-Chelsea player, she was playing manager for a bit as well, right? Um, is, is she your preferred candidate? And, and if not, who else is going to be in the mix, do you think? It's a tough managerial market, I will say. I think, you know, women's football does still have a real dearth of sort of talented managers who have the experience that would be seen as requisite for them taking a job like this. And to that extent, I think whoever Chelsea go for, they're going to be taking a bit of a risk. Stoney, I think, is a very attractive candidate in terms of she has a relationship with the club. She's managed successfully in the WSL. She's then gone on to manage successfully in the NWSL with San Diego Wave, where she is at at the moment. They did just get knocked out of the NWSL knockouts over the weekend, but she won the Shield there, which to me as an English person, I think is the better thing to go and win anyway. So I think to that extent, she's someone who also has a lot of experience in terms of building clubs. You know, she was United's first manager. She was San Diego Wave's first manager. And that, I think, fits very closely with what Hayes was able to do at Chelsea. The problem is, is, well, I don't, problem is maybe the wrong word. Obviously, you've got to ask whether she wants to come anyway. And one interesting factor in that is that Stoney spent a long time trying to get her wife and kids out to America to live with her and only succeeded in doing that a couple of months ago, having been out there for over two years herself. Whether, you know, she would then want to bring everyone back again for sort of the start of next season, I guess, is, is a personal question as well as a professional question for her. In terms of other candidates, Someone like Laura Harvey, who's also managed in WSL, former Arsenal manager, currently manager of the OL Reigns. She was heavily linked to that US job. Um, she's someone who would potentially be looked at, I guess. And I think from a tactical perspective, someone whose name I haven't really seen linked but would be intriguing, I think, is someone like Willie Kirk, um, who's had a strong start to the season with a Leicester team, which is realistically quite underfunded. Um, he's had a bit of a hit and miss time in management and it would be far and away the biggest job he's ever taken he was actually Casey Stoney's assistant at Manchester United briefly so he's been involved with bigger teams before but this is the issue that Chelsea face really that there just isn't kind of one outstanding candidate even someone like Stoney you're talking someone who's sort of got five years of management who's never managed as a as in Champions League football you know there, there are question marks around her even if she probably looks like the best option so whoever they go for you know, there's going to be massive blanks, I think, in their CV in terms of taking on the job. And the reality is, is that when Hayes took the Chelsea job, it didn't matter that she had a terrible start to the season. You know, Hayes's first season at Chelsea was rubbish, but she had the time to build what she took it to. But now Chelsea are, you know, one of the biggest teams in the world. Whoever comes in will not have that time to do that. Yeah, Willie Kirk's an interesting one. I've worked with him um, a lot since he took over at Leicester. I think he's definitely got the personality for it, but it's one of those where you kind of want to be the one after the one after Emma Hayes, not the immediate one, maybe. Um, last question. How does this affect Chelsea's recruitment now and sort of trying to retain players who, who might be coming up to contract expiration or or maybe looking to leave? It's, it's a different sell now, isn't it? Even though they are 
four times in a row league champions and and the team that manages to get through to the Champions League group stage more often than not from the WSL. Emma Hayes is a big driving force in in getting players to come to the club is what I'm getting at. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I still think Chelsea are one of the most attractive clubs to join in terms of what their offer is, you know, sort of in terms of salary package, what's given to you off the pitch, the support you get, the success that you can have. But clearly Emma Hayes has played a massive role in lots of players coming to the club and lots of players staying at the club. And, you know, for all Chelsea saying they don't want to rush this process, which they shouldn't, that's also something you have to think about in terms of players whose contracts are coming up. You know, players like Sam Kerr, like Frank Kirby, their contracts run out at the end of this season. And maybe Chelsea, depending on who they come in, will just have to accept that there is some turnover in players. And it is interesting seeing how Chelsea's recruitment strategy has developed recently uh, in terms of, you know, buying lots of talented teenagers, you know, very similar to the men's side, leaving them out on loan. But, you know, there has been a sense, I think, of trying to be prepared for when older players move on and I think the players who there will be big question marks on are are sort of the older players in that position but I mean it also it's fascinating for players who came in this summer you know if you're an Ashley Lawrence who joined from from Paris Saint-Germain thinking you're going to work with Emma Hayes suddenly you're like this is bizarre I mean Katarina Macario will work with Emma Hayes because she's American but you know she's not even played yet at, at Chelsea so there's a chance she'll probably have about you know 5 months of club football with Hayes before she goes and becomes her international manager so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out something that has been fascinating though is uh, Emma Hayes hasn't done sort of contract photos or signing photos for a while at the club that's more recently been Paul Green in those photos and i do wonder if that is also something that has been underexplored or hard to disentangle in terms of what is Hayes's exact role in that behind the scenes recruitment thing obviously players want to work with her but clearly there has been something sort of in the imagery at Chelsea which has also put Paul Green as the general manager as this big figure in doing the recruitment I mean now we don't know if Paul Green will stay we're assuming that he will at the moment but I think even you can't underplay like how what a big shockwave Hayes leaving will be, but she's not everything at Chelsea, even if she is a lot of it. All right, you've made me feel a little bit better. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you back on the show, Jesse. Hopefully, we will do again soon. But thank you for your time today. All right, we'll leave it there. It was an incredible game. We're never going to forget it. Let's hope we get something similar against Manchester City on Sunday. We will preview that on our Thursday show and then I'll tell you what's been happening with the academy sides as well because it's not really the issue today. And the under-21s have got a big game tonight as we record. So we'll let you know how they get on with that. Athletic.com slash Chelsea pod. The place to go to read all the excellent Chelsea content and other stuff. If you so desire, I should have mentioned earlier that Jesse Parker Humphreys, who joined us to talk, Emma Hayes has written the definitive piece on what's happened with her and what happens next. So go check that out. Plenty of other good stuff up there as well. We will be back on Thursday. Until then, have a great week. Bye for now. The Athletic.